Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, June 1st, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. 500 years later, the Medicis continue to ruin Michelangelo's artworks, but fortunately, some bacteria are on the scene to restore his works to their former glory. The new naming scheme for COVID-19 variants, and the story of Allendale, Texas, once the only village in the entire world to be fully air-conditioned. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. It's not often that an art restoration done well makes the headlines. Restorations can kind of be like cleaning the house, you know? People rarely notice when it's been done, but they certainly notice when it hasn't. An art restoration, likewise, goes viral when an unqualified person, say, turns a fresco of Jesus into a blurry monkey painting, but doesn't usually garner attention when successfully undergone. Unless the successful restoration was achieved by slathering statues with corpse-juice-eating bacteria. That's what happened last year at the Medici Chapel in Florence, where they employed a few types of bacteria to clean the Michelangelo-designed statues and tombs of the Medici's mausoleum. According to the New York Times, this all started in 2016, when Marina Vincente, one of the restorers at the Medici Chapel, attended a conference in which biologist Anna Rosa Spricati and her colleagues from the Italian National Agency for New Technologies shared how they had used bacteria to give a fresh wash to Baroque-era frescoes at the Palazzo Farnese in Rome. So then in 2019, when the chapel decided to begin the first major restoration since 1988, Vincente advocated for the bacteria method. And, you know, I should say that this all really began in the 1500s, when Pope Leo X, the first Medici Pope, decided that his family should have a great, lavish mausoleum designed by Michelangelo. Some Medicis were interred there throughout the years as Michelangelo continued working on it, and this was in the 1520s and 30s, around the time of the sack of Rome, when the Medicis were ousted and then later came back, and Michelangelo likewise fled Rome at one point and then was later pardoned, but he eventually left for good and the mausoleum was never finished. And shortly after Michelangelo left, Alessandro Medici, the Duke of Florence and son of Lorenzo di Piero, was assassinated by a relative in 1537. Alessandro was not well-liked, and his body, therefore, was merely wrapped in carpet and unceremoniously thrown into one of the tombs, one belonging to his father, whom he would ultimately share it with. Now, because it was not properly prepared, his corpse has become one of the primary drivers of stains on the marble. Quoting the New York Times, Over the centuries, he seeped into Michelangelo's marble, the chapel's experts said, creating deep stains, button-shaped deformations, and more recently, providing a feast for the chapel's preferred cleaning product, a bacteria called Seracia Ficaria SH7. End quote. So, the stains are thanks to Alessandro, general passage of time and hand oils of tourists, as well as the residue left behind from plasters that were used to make copies of the marble statues and structures over the years. The Times notes that descriptions of stains on the marble began as early as 1595, so this has been an ongoing project for centuries. 
and thus enter the new bacteria method. Quoting again, In November 2019, the museum brought in Italy's National Research Council, which used infrared spectroscopy that revealed calcite, silicate, and other more organic remnants on the sculptures and two tombs that face one another across the new sacristy. That provided a key blueprint for Spercati, the biologist, to choose the most appropriate bacteria from a collection of nearly 1,000 strains, usually used to break down petroleum in oil spills or to reduce the toxicity of heavy metals. Then the restoration team tested the most promising eight strains behind the altar on a small rectangular pallet spotted with rows of squares like a tiny marble bingo board. All of the ones selected were non-hazardous and without spores, said former director of the Medici Chapel's Museum, Monica Bietti, end quote. The chapel began the process before the pandemic and, after brief closure, picked it up again before tourists returned, spreading gels of the SH7 bacteria all over the sarcophagi. And you can see in the photos in the New York Times article linked in the show notes that it really does work. Plus, art restorer Daniela Mana pointed out to the Times that it's, quote, better for our health, for the environment, and the works of art, end quote. And the Medici Chapel is not the first place to utilize bacteria to clean works of art, quoting The Verge. Italy, in particular, is known for putting microbes to work in conservation efforts. A sulfur-chomping bacteria was used to remove black crusts from parts of the Milan Cathedral and performed way better than a comparable chemical treatment. In Pisa, a bacterial strain that eats pollutants helped clean up damaged frescoes on a cathedral dome and at a cemetery near the Leaning Tower. Other researchers are mapping out the bacteria and other tiny beings that already live on paintings. They found that some microbes that made their home on the pigments might actually help keep the artwork from deteriorating in the first place. End quote. It is so cool to see this fusion of art, science, and history all working in harmony towards better solutions for the future. It's something that I think Michelangelo himself would be super into. B117, 501YV2, B16172. You'd be forgiven for having trouble keeping track of the names of COVID-19 variants as bestowed on them by scientists, and instead sometimes referring to them by the nation where they're thought to have originated. But yesterday, the World Health Organization announced a new method for naming the variants that they hope will cut down on blaming and stigmatizing of the nations associated with each variant's origin, not to mention prejudice against people from those nations. Quoting Reuters, The four coronavirus variants considered of concern by the UN agency and known generally by the public as the UK, South Africa, Brazil, and India variants have now been assigned the Greek letters Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and Delta, respectively, according to the order of their detection. Other variants of interest continue down the alphabet. While they have their advantages, these scientific names can be difficult to say and recall and are prone to misreporting, said the WHO explaining the decision. The choice of the Greek alphabet came after months of deliberations in which other possibilities, such as Greek gods and invented pseudo-classical names, were considered, according to bacteriologist Mark Palin, who was involved in the talks. End quote. A lot of those alternative ideas were scrapped because they're frequently used by companies. The WHO also considered using plants or fruits, as well as lost religions, or simply VOC1, VOC2, VOC3, etc. But Palin pointed out that if you were to pronounce that in English, it sounds a bit too similar to a certain swear word. VOC1 or VOC1. Yeah. 
Good point, Mr. Palin. Some scientists had apparently already been using the names of different types of birds for the variants, but this was ruled out due to the fear of those certain birds being targeted, not to mention those of us with avian-related names. The alphanumerical names will continue to be used in research settings as they do contain pertinent information within their names, but informally, the WHO urges us to use the Greek alphabet names going forward. As WHO epidemiologist Maria von Kirchhoff said, quote, no country should be stigmatized for detecting and reporting variants, end quote. Air conditioning is horrible for the environment. The units themselves use an astronomical amount of energy, and the coolants used in them when they leak into the atmosphere during manufacturing are several times more warming than CO2. Yet, the number of units in the world is skyrocketing as more and more communities hit record temperatures in their warmer months. As Stephen Barani wrote in The Guardian in 2019, quote, The warmer it gets, the more we use air conditioning. And the more we use air conditioning, the warmer it gets. End quote. And yet, especially here in the U.S. where modern air conditioning units were invented and first implemented, so many facets of our lives have been shaped by air conditioning. So implementing new, more environmentally friendly cooling solutions will require some radical shifts in day-to-day -day life. And nowhere is that more true than in the southern states where long, hot summers caused populations to stagnate in the early 20th century, and they wouldn't see a net gain of new residents until the 19th 1960s when central air conditioning started coming standard in new homes, meaning that heat waves were no longer as deadly, and as Salvatore Basile, author of Cool, How Air Conditioning Changed Everything, described it to the Smithsonian Magazine, people were now able to, quote, carry on very normal lives during the hot months, which would not have happened before, end quote. But while we can now appreciate the many benefits of air conditioning, even as we reckon with its environmental impact, the technology was not an instant success. First installed in offices and theaters, air conditioning was often viewed as something for people too soft to put up with the heat, though people's opinions frequently changed once they got to experience the marvel for themselves. It took a while for air conditioning units to be sized and designed for domestic use as well. Window box units rolled out in homes starting in the late 1940s, but central air conditioning took longer to crack. In 1953, the National Association of Home Builders, or NAHB, decided to undergo a one-year research project to prove whether it would be economically advantageous to install central air conditioning in residential homes. They partnered with the University of Texas at Austin to design a new subdivision of 22 homes on the outskirts of the Allendale neighborhood in Austin. The houses would all be 1,400 square feet with three bedrooms, garages, one or two bathrooms, and, of course, central air conditioning. Now, one reason that central AC had not been installed in homes previously was because the fans were so loud and the machines themselves so large. The builders had to get creative with how they would obscure some of the machinery, and they learned some parts of the process by trial and error. For example, they used sheetrock hidden in the walls of the house for ductwork instead of metal ducts, which a report after the fact cited as the greatest single headache of the whole endeavor. And interestingly, while the experiment was mainly about central air conditioning, the builders took great care to implement other methods of cooling, like wide overhangs to create shade, windows placed intentionally to avoid strong sun, new types of insulation, and ventilation systems in the kitchens, bathrooms, and attics. 
In exchange for all of these newfangled designs and a standard mortgage, residents had to agree to a regular observation by researchers for their first year in the house. Quoting Amusing Planet, After the one-year-long study was over, the NAHB reported that families spent more time at home, slept longer, took on hobbies, improved their appetites, and were generally happy. The women from the Austin air-conditioned village reported less dirt and dust in the house, which in turn allowed the use of previously considered luxuries such as white rugs, curtains, and upholstery." End quote. Though the Austin Public Library does note that the NAHB had a pretty strong bias in expanding the market for central air, so the less positive impacts of central AC may not have been reported. Regardless, the experiment worked, and less than 10 years later, 6.5 million homes in the U.S. had central air conditioning. That number is up more than 10 times today, and it's now more common for a home in the U.S. to have some form of air conditioning than to have a garage, a dining room, or a dishwasher. And yet, I can't help but think how much about our world would be different today if the National Association of Home Builders had decided to study not just the health and comfort benefits, but also the environmental impact of domestic central air conditioners back in 1953, and if anyone had listened to them or anyone else about what that would come to mean. So on Friday, I kicked off Memorial Day weekend here in the U.S. by sharing one journalist's definitive ranking of hot dog cooking methods. There were nine methods shared, from boiling to searing to roasting over a campfire. However, one listener, Paul, wrote in to inform me of one hot dog cooking method that was tragically left off the list. The Presto Hot Dogger. Paul described it to me as, quote, the most innovative method of 60-second cookery ever devised, end quote. Now, for the unenlightened like myself, the Presto hot dogger hit the scene in the 1970s and was simply a box with spikes for you to skewer half a dozen hot dogs onto, but it didn't heat up per se. You just plugged the box into an outlet and it electrocuted the meat with 120 volts straight from the wall. That's right, you just electrocuted the hot dogs, and in 60 seconds, they'd be good enough to eat. Good enough might be a relative term to your personal taste, but there's no denying that this thing looks like a blast. Last year, The Takeout got their hands on one of these machines, and after getting bored with hot dogs, ran some experiments to see what else they could cook with it, including a bratwurst, a Twinkie, and a zucchini. Which, as the creator of a long-running show about what kind of weird things you can put on a waffle iron, I have mad respect for their attempts. In any case, there are a number of these available on eBay in case you want to relive the glory days of hot dog electrocution for yourself, and thanks again to Paul for bringing this amazing machine to my attention. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.